Get your Bibles. Turn to Isaiah 58. You know, when, um, when a builder buys a, decides to build in a new neighborhood, when they start developing a neighborhood, they'll go out and they'll, they'll lay out the streets. And then we, usually the first thing that they do, the first thing they build is actually a home. And they'll build what's called a model home. And the purpose of that model home is to actually show people what houses may look like in there. Now, we understand that, I understand, especially if you go and you look at a model home, chances are your home is not going to look like that because you're not going to be able to afford all that. Because it is usually they, they really make it look beautiful. But its purpose is to draw you in. The purpose is to show you, the idea is to show you what would life be like in that neighborhood. Now we're going to look at Isaiah today and, and understand that the purpose of God choosing Israel, Israel's job was to show the world what it was like to live with God as your one and only God. Because all the other nations had multiple gods, they had false gods. And Isaiah was, uh, Israel was supposed to be this place where God was the only God, God was the only one worshipped, and they would live lives of prosperity. And people from the outside would look in and say, wow, there's something about the Israelites. What is it? We need to find out. And ultimately, everyone would become Jewish and would worship the one God. And understand that that is also the purpose of the church. The church is to be the model home for a new neighborhood okay, that is coming, that is here now, but is also one that is coming, the kingdom of God. We are to be that model home. So what kind of church best represents God and is the most persuasive in moving people to want to move in and live in the neighborhood called Christianity? Is it a megachurch? Or is it a small church? Some people think it's a big church. Others possibly think it's a small church. But I think when we only look at those two things, when we only look at size, and look at those two perspectives, I think we're falling way short of the kind of church that God truly wishes all of us to be part of. Because the church that best reflects our builder, the one that God wishes to be part of, is the church that is faithful. The faithful church is the church that God wants us to be. So Isaiah 58 is going to challenge us today. And it's not going to challenge us because what it's asking is hard. What Isaiah is doing in these verses is he's going to be extremely blunt. I'm going to say some things that may offend some people in both big churches, mega churches, and small churches. But as I've said many times, my, my goal is not for us to for me to hold your hand and make you feel good about where we are. My responsibility is to show us where we should be according to what God wants and to help us move towards that. So when we build a house, obviously the first thing you've got to start with is the foundation. The foundation needs to be good. It needs to be strong. And Jesus is the foundation of the church. And we build that foundation by confession and repentance. So let's look at what Isaiah says in the first verse of Isaiah 58. God says to him, cry aloud, do not hold back. And you're thinking, oh, he's going to say something great. He's going to say something good. 
says, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Nobody, nobody likes to see their sins exposed. We hear our sins and we we realize how far short we are of what God expects of us and that we're guilty. Our first inclination a lot of times is to deny it. But once we realize that it's true, we feel shame. And I don't like feeling shame. None of us do. But shame, shame is that beginning point where we start to move towards repentance. Isaiah is told to cry out. Hold nothing back. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't try to make them feel good. We have this tendency today to sugarcoat things and not tell people the truth because we don't want to offend them. We don't want to hurt their feelings. Well, Scripture tells us that that Jesus is a stumbling block. He's going to offend people. The gospel is going to offend people. And consistently throughout Scripture, we see places where it tells us that we are to confront those who are sinning. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, Galatians 6, 1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any transgression, you are, who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. We are to gently restore them. We're not, but we're not to sugarcoat the sin. We're, we're, we're not to you know, softly tell them, hey, you know, you might want... No, we say, listen, brother, you're sinning. This is wrong. It's going to lead to your destruction. We don't hold back. But then when they realize that we gently, I love you, I want you, and I want to help you, we gently bring them back. But we have to call out the sin. We have to be direct sometimes because they need to understand the seriousness of that sin. Jesus tells us in Luke 17, he says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, you think about that, what does it mean to rebuke? The best example I have of, of, of a rebuking is when Jesus turned to Peter and says, get away, get behind me, Satan. A rebuke is not just this gentle, hey, I wanted to, I want to talk to you about something. No, it's listen, straighten up. Now, those of you who've had kids, you've had to say that a few times. I've had to say it a few times today with my kids. Straighten up. Straighten up and fly right. <laughs> you should, we should, the whole phrase is, stop what you're doing and do the right thing. See, the goal in exposing our sin is to not to hurt the person, not to condemn them, but to restore them into a right relationship with other people and a right relationship with God. See, many times, even when we are confronted with our sins, we don't realize that we're even doing anything that we shouldn't be doing. And we end up living a double life. And that's what Isaiah is going to address here in verse 2. He says, yet they seek me daily. Sounds good. They seek God. That's a good thing. 
They and delight to know my ways. They want to know. They read. They read their scriptures. They listen to what the priests say to them. What the, the teachers of the law teach them. They they want to know God's ways. That's a good thing. As if they were a nation that did righteousness. They're listening. Their desire is there, but they don't do righteousness. And did not forsake the judgment of their God. They asked for me righteous judgments. And they delight to draw near to God. These are, these are all good things that they're doing. But Isaiah, what he is doing is he is exposing their hypocrisy, their religiosity. See, from the outside, it would look like the, the Israelites are actually seeking God. You can go to many a church service today. And you can walk in, and it could be a big church or a small church. doesn't matter. And you'd be sitting there, and you'd be watching people, and what you'll see, you'll see people looks like they're worshiping, but do you know what they really are? They may not be. We don't know. That's why we're not to do that. We're to be worshiping about, we're worried about ourselves and worshiping ourselves, not worrying about the people around us. Unless we're worrying about them, their soul and we're caring for them. From the outside, it looks like they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do, living for God. But the reality was, they are anything but righteous in the eyes of God. They are hypocrites. And a hypocrite is one who assumes a false appearance. One who feigns to be what they're not. Who tries to pretend they're one thing, but they're actually another. Or they feel or believe what they're doing is at, what they actually feel or believe. They believe what they're doing, that they're actually that. So they believe that they're actually being righteous, but in reality they are not. They're just playing the game, but they don't even know they're playing the game. I think that's the problem today in many churches. There are people who think they're being righteous by being in church. And the reality is it doesn't being in a church doesn't make you any more righteous than not being in church. Because it's a matter of the heart. So many times, those that are hypocrites, they have no idea that they're being a hypocrite. It is, it is very possible for us to look churchy on the outside. I don't know if that's a real word or not. I don't think my spell checker checked it. We look like we're church people, right? But on the inside, we're not. Inside, we're dark. We're darker than the darkest pits of hell. God addresses that. Back in Isaiah 29, he addressed this idea. He says, in verses 13 and 40, he says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, it looks like they're doing what they're supposed to, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a, is a commandment taught by men. And they're not following God's laws, they're following man's laws. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. I'm going to eliminate all those people that are doing that, but I'm still going to do amazing things with them. Our worship, our religious practices, they look righteous. On the outside, they look like they're what we're supposed to be doing, but they are not pleasing to God. And many times when we're confronted with hypocrisy, we don't see it, we deny it. We don't understand what we're doing wrong. We don't see it at all. And that's what we get here. They begin to ask the question in verse 3 of Isaiah 58. Why have we fasted and you see it not? 
Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Don't you see what we're doing? Do you not see? We're fasting. And God, you don't even recognize it. God, look what I'm doing for you and nothing happens. What am I? You know, why are you ignoring me? You get this sense of this lack of realization that what they're doing is wrong. What they're doing is useless religiosity. They are doing what they think is right. They're fasting, they're humbling themselves, they're doing what seems like the right thing to do. Thinking that God's going to notice them and be pleased with them, with their rituals. And believe me, rituals in and of themselves are not bad. We have rituals here in this church. We do communion. That's a ritual that we do. Prayer is a ritual. But it can become useless and empty if we're not careful. See, their question, they're, they're saying, well, don't you notice what we're doing? That's not the question they should be asking. They should be saying, Lord, show us what we're doing wrong. Teach us so that we can do better. That's what they should be saying. That's what they should be asking, but they don't ask that. They ask, why don't you notice? Well, why don't you, don't, do you not see how wonderful we are? <laughs> You're rejecting our hard work. In Matthew 7... Verse 22, it says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They believe what they're doing is right. And they believe that they're doing it the right way. Fasting, humbling. And that God is obligated to bless them because of those actions. God is not obligated to bless us because of anything. Any blessings that we receive from God is grace. Any blessings we receive from God is just that. It's not because I prayed more. It's not because I was more righteous. It's not because I led more people to Christ. It's not because I'm a good person because none of us are good. Any blessing we have is because of God's gracious love for us. We can't manipulate him by fasting and sit there and say, how dare he not see the hard work I'm doing? See, there's, there seems to be, at this time in the Israelites and in, in the church today, there seems to be this disconnect between faith and lifestyle. A disconnect between, and for you guys, you guys understand, men, you guys, many too might understand what that means, why the different screwdrivers and screws. It's a disconnect there. We can't. I'm sorry, bad joke. Ed got it first thing. <laughs> See, you can't. There's no way you can you can use that. Well, you could, but you're going to struggle. <laughs> you're going to struggle. There's a big disconnect there. Putting a square peg in a round hole, it doesn't work. We've we've lost that connection between our lifestyle and our faith. We where the disconnect between where our hearts should be and our actions. But maybe they're isn't a disconnect between the heart and the action. Maybe the reality is our actions truly are what our heart is, and we're lying to ourselves. Maybe our, their actions were a reflection of that true heart. Because look at what's been occurring. This is what they've been doing. 
Remember, they've been fasting. They've been humbling themselves. He says at the end of 3 and into 4, he says, Behold, in the day of your fast, while you're fasting, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. They're fasting while they're sinning, or they're sinning while they're fasting. What it is, I don't know, and it doesn't matter. Either way is bad. It's useless. The scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' time, they suffer from the same problem. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, in Matthew 23, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. And I'm afraid the church today is not immune to this problem. We, we go to church on Sunday... And in some churches, we become spectators to a show that brings really no glory to God at all. And we listen to a message that is more motivational than biblical, making us feel good about ourselves, avoiding addressing the sin that's in our lives. Or we might go to a small church and just with just a guitar or an organ for worship, and yet we may find ourselves still in that same trap. It's not about the size of the church. It is about not getting trapped in the religiosity that we find in the churches. The great sounding band on stage with lights and modern music does not make a church false. Because it's the heart of the people who are leading the worship. It's the songs they're singing and whether or not they're orthodox. Meaning, are they scriptural? Are they truly reflecting who God is and who Christ is? And it's the heart of the leaders who are teaching the people. And it's the heart of the people that are listening. Are they there to grow? Are they there to realize where they are and how they're living and to change their lives? Are they, are they there for that purpose? If the music is orthodox and the preaching is biblical and the people are humbly coming to challenge themselves in their lives in order to honor Christ and not just coming to be entertained, not just coming to check the list off of the, oh, we've been to church this week, then God will be pleased because it's always a matter of the heart. See, the problem with the Israelites is they had become shallow. And they were guilty of, of role-playing righteousness. We're God's chosen people. We're, we, don't you see we fast and we, we, we humble ourselves? That's what God's people do. Because, But see, there's a difference between being people of God and being people like people of God. It's a matter of the heart. Verse 5. God's going to give them what it takes. He's going to begin to straighten this out. Because he's asked them, Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? 
Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? He's saying, this is what I want. I want you to humble yourself, yes. But when you fast, you're not just to fast. You are to humble yourself. You're not to be looking for enjoyment. You're not to be looking for things that bring you pleasure. You're not to be treating people the way you're treating them. Because we have a tendency, we disconnect these different parts of our lives. We, we, cannot, we cannot compensate for the neglect that we have on, on Monday through Saturday okay, by coming to church on Sunday. That, it doesn't, there's no scale. You know, God doesn't grade on a curve. You're either for Him or against Him. So we, we can't come to church on Sunday and, and act like we're such great people and then go live our week like we're not. And that's what the Israelites were doing. They were humbling themselves. They were, they were fasting. And then they would go and then they would just treat people terribly. And they would seek after other gods. See, what we do on Monday through Saturday cannot be right and atoned for by what we do on Sunday. And that's what was happening, is, especially in Israel, because they had, well, we, we could sacrifice. Sacrifice takes care of our sins, right? God wants us to live a life of prayer and of fasting. And it should be an integral part of our lives. We need quiet time with Him. We need fasting that causes us to rely on God instead of our own strength. But we can't convince God how awesome we are by our fasting. Israelites couldn't do it and we can't do it either. We can't disregard, we can't sit there and fast we can't sit there and focus on trying to show God that we're righteous and then ignore and disregard those who have needs. Those who are less fortunate than us. Jesus' half-brother James wrote in James 1, 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, visit the orphans and widows in their affliction, which means help them in their time of need, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, there's a very destructive mark on Christianity today, and that's privatization. We have a, a, a tendency to treat our faith as a personal lifestyle option, disconnected from our social responsibility to those around us. And I don't just mean our families. I mean beyond that. I mean those outside the four walls of our homes. See, our, our Christianity, it, it, it must be deeply internal and personal, yes, but it doesn't just stop right there. Because if it does, then it's just a hobby. The modern church has allowed us to become nothing more sometimes than a hobby. Some of our churches, it can't be. It has to be more than that. See, because the power in the Christian life is to live for Christ. Authentic Christianity is expressed with a heart for Christ in two different ways. We worship. We praise Him. We pray with lifted hands and open Bibles so God is beautiful beyond anything we could ever imagine. And the second way is in courageous evangelism and defending and feeding the weak and the hungry. It can't be an either-or proposition 
Christianity is not this menu that you can choose from. And you know what? I don't feel like having dessert today, so I'm not going to have dessert, which is always a travesty when you can't have dessert. But it's not this menu that you just get to pick and choose. Well, I'll have, you know, I'll have, I'll have fasting today, and I'll, I'll take the sermon, but I'm not going to do the worship. No. You need to worship God. You need to listen to His Word. You need to read His Word. You need to be in prayer. You need to spend time fasting. You need to, but you don't stop there. You go and you move on and you reach out to those that are hurting. Reach out to those who are poor. Reach out to those who need Christ and you share Christ with them. And it's not that difficult. It's like, you know what? I want to tell you, friend, I've been watching you. You need Christ. And, and I want to tell you about him, who he is. He's the son of God. He came. He died for you. We're all sinners. We're all where you are. We're, we're all broken. We need Jesus It needs to be an all-or-nothing proposition. See, when we put ourselves out there for those who can't pay us back in any way or advance our own agenda, that's what pleases God. And it's usually, when that happens, it's going counter to what we normally in our human selves want to do. But we don't do it to impress God. We don't do it to impress others. You know, we don't... I, 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 in the church, sometimes I'm kind of, uh, I kind of cringe when it's like we bring we we bring accolades on somebody. Oh, you oh you've led 15 people to Christ. Oh, isn't that great? That's awesome. Good job. Well, they've got their reward. We're supposed to store up treasures in heaven, not here. We do what we're supposed to do. We do those things because that's part of worship. It's not look at me, it's look at God. See, we doing things that trying to convince God that, that we want him, it, it's not the answer. Isaiah goes on in verses 6 and 7, he says, Is not this the fast that I choose? And he's telling this is the purpose of the fast, to lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Now that last line is kind of interesting because in Hebrew those words actually mean not just my own flesh, you would think well my own family, my flesh and blood. No, he's, it's actually a word that means all of humanity. We are not supposed to hide ourselves from humanity. We're not supposed to close ourselves in to our little place, little places and not reach out and meet anybody and meet people and be in people's lives. That's not what it means to be a Christian. There are times, yes, I've talked about this the last couple of weeks, that we need to go off by ourselves and we need to spend some time with God to rejuvenate ourselves. But after that, we need to be engaging our culture. We need to be engaging our neighbors. We need to be engaging that woman at the grocery store who needed help. And you'll know when you're supposed to do it. The times I've helped people, I, I've known I'm supposed to do it. I want to tell you one, but I, I don't want to tell you one, you know? Because then it, that focuses it on me. But uh, there are times, just a couple weeks ago, I'm not, I'm not going to give you the details, but God said, you, you need to do this. I, I didn't hear his voice, but I felt the prompting. He pushed me. 
you need to go, you need to go do this for them. And I did. And, and, and so what did I get out of it? I felt good that I did that, but I didn't. I, I was doing what I was supposed to do. That's what we need to do. We need to help those who are less fortunate than us. God is redefining religion here in Isaiah 58. He's causing us to turn away from selfishness, turn away from self-centeredness, and to turn towards those in our community who are hurting. Not just hurting physically, but also hurting in their relationship with God. And believe me, folks, there are a lot of people in this world who are hurting in their relationship with God. I'll be honest, I've had some struggles the last few weeks, where God and I, I, I want to say that we're on, we weren't on speaking terms, but I wasn't on speaking terms with him. He was talking to me. I wasn't listening. <laughs> I don't hear you. I don't hear you. Because I didn't like what he was saying. But that's nothing compared to relationships, the, the lack of relationship that a lot of people have. Anger, antagonism, fear. God cares very deeply for human suffering both the physical and the spiritual. And he wants us to care just as deeply as he does for both of those. So when we fast, you know, what we're doing is we're experiencing what the poor feel. When we go without a meal for just one day, you know, you, 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 begin, to, you, know, you begin to realize that we are very obsessed with food. Aren't we? You can't drive down the road with seeing how many different fast food places. Right? Listen to the radio or watch TV without seeing so many commercials from McDonald's, Burger King, wherever, Wendy's, Taco Bell, Chick-fil-A. I used to love looking, watching stuff online because you wouldn't have the commercials. Now all the commercials are there too. But, but when we fast, it, it gets our, our attention off of something like that. It makes us rely on God. And believe me, one day of fasting, you won't die. Now, some, some people, they have to be careful because the medications are on and you have to adjust it for that, believe me. But I'll be honest with you, I believe most of us can afford to not eat for a day. And actually, most of us would save money by not eating for a day. So when we fast, we are experiencing that. We get, and it should move us to have compassion on those who don't have. See, we are, the, we are a country of the haves. We have, I was talking to, um, I was talking to somebody this last week, can't remember who it was now, but I was talking to them and I was saying, you know, we really, we, we really don't understand what poor is. In this country, our poorest poor are rich compared to some countries. We have no clue what really, what poor is is. Have-nots people are all around us, both physically and spiritually, both the rich and the poor. There are rich people out there who have everything they need, but you know what? They are spiritually destitute. They need Jesus. There are poor out there who have nothing, and they need Jesus. Because many times the rich are actually the spiritual have-nots. 24,000 people are dying each day of hunger-related causes in the world today. And most of them are children. 
And many of those slip into eternity without knowing Christ. God cares about every single one of them. And he wants us to do something about it. He doesn't want us to solve the problem because he says, you will always have the poor. Always. What he wants us to do is he wants to do what he has given us the ability to do. I think if we could all experience three days in third world poverty, I think we would do everything we had in the power, in our power to feed the hungry. And I think if we spent three seconds in hell, we would do everything in our power to reach those who are spiritually hungry. See, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In Galatians, Paul says, For if you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what happens? What happens? What would happen if Israel, if the Israelites had repented, if they had become faithful and actually were, were reconnecting their hearts and their lifestyle? What would happen? Because if we see what would happen with them, then we know what would happen with us. And that's in verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall bring spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. So you want your prayers answered? Well, believe me, all prayers are answered. Either yes, no, or wait. The last one I hate. I don't like wait. It's the one usually God gives me. Yes, no, or wait. In order for us, I think, in order for us to have our prayers answered, we need to be an answer to someone else's prayer. Do you want God to come close to you and say, here I am? Then draw near to someone and say, here I am, to help. This is a paradox that is counter to everything that this fallen world will teach us. Acts 20.35 says, In all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, this is Paul speaking, we, may, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. But nothing normally in our American culture pushes this. Nothing in our American culture makes us think this way. But it is the way that God, that makes God happy. Why? Because he is a happy giver. He's a giving God a passionate lover, an ever-present helper. He wants us to share his joy with others. Isaiah goes on, he says, If you take away the yoke from your midst, the yoke was the thing that was on the oxen, it kept the ox from going where they weren't supposed to go. It was heavy. If you take that off, the pointing of the finger, don't blame other people. You know, I always say, you know, you're pointing at me, you got three other fingers pointing back at you. Don't point your finger and don't speak wickedness. Stop doing those things. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. You want your light to shine for Christ? Take off the yoke of slavery. Take off, break down those strongholds in your life. Pray that God helps you break the strongholds that are keeping you from Him. 
Stop pointing your finger at other people. Stop speaking wickedness and pour yourself out for those who are less fortunate, hungry and, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Those who are spiritually and physically hungry, help them in whatever way God provides for you to help them. He's calling the Israelites and he's calling us today to right the wrongs around us and stop pointing fingers at others. We, we can't blame others for our inaction. If we do this, if we put aside our wickedness, we live our faith 24-7, we're going to be a light that shines. You want to know why God, when God says he wanted them to be, you know, the, and Jesus said that the actual, the temple was supposed to be the, the house of prayer for the nations, because they were supposed to be praying for the nations around them, that God would bring, that they would come in, they would want to, to be with Yahweh, be with God, and worship God, because the light would shine out from there. Our light needs to shine into the world. And I think today the church is dim. Our light is dim. It's not just not our church. I mean, I'm not just speaking about us. I'm talking about the Western church. Our light is dim. Oh, we've got we got huge churches with with huge amount of lights, and but right outside the door is darkness. Sometimes in those church, even though there's a bunch of light, there's darkness. People are drawn to Christ because he was different. That's why they came to him. He was different than all the other messiahs because there were a lot of people who came saying they were the messiah. When Jesus gave some rather difficult teaching in John 6, many left him because they didn't like it. I mean, it was too difficult. And he turns to his disciples and says, Are you guys leaving? And Simon says, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have the words of eternal life that we can give to people. We may not be, we're not going to be able to solve poverty. Okay? We're not going to be able to solve all loneliness. But we can do what we can do. And we can actually give them hope for the next world. If our light is shining, people are going to ask us, why? What is it about you? What's going on? They can see the light shining in our lives. And as a church, if we're doing this, they'll see it. Verses 11 and 12. More promises on what would happen if we repent. And if Israel would repent and turn back to God. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. I, I, I'm getting older and I'm hoping for that. Because my bones hurt. You shall be like the watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. You know, God never promises us financial prosperity. But he does promise us spiritual prosperity. If we put away all of our selfish ambition, all of our selfish motives, if we live a life that reflects the faith that we have in Christ, and we live that out to the world, to everyone we encounter. Because remember, the, the, the Great Commission is not just go. The actual word means as you are going. As you're living your life, share the gospel. Make disciples. We need our faith. Our lives need to reflect the faith that we have in Christ. It's not just lived out on Sunday mornings, but every moment of the week. I want to finish with the book of James, James 1. He says, verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers. 
Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For anyone... For if anyone is a hero of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at the natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. Can you imagine that? You go to a mirror, you look at it, you see your face, you walk away and you're like, what do I look like? When we hear the word, when we hear God's word, and it doesn't change our hearts, and we, we don't, it doesn't change who we are and what we do, it's like we didn't even see it. We didn't even experience it. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is the church God wants us to be. Let's pray.